Good morning. I like that last, that's kind of like a jazzy feel. I like that, that last piece. Hope you're doing well this morning. We'll be in John chapter 15. Uh, I don't know if you heard me, but I like that last piece of music. Uh, John chapter 15 is where we'll be this morning. Um, Lord willing, we'll finish up John chapter 15 next week, and then, Lord willing, uh, take a short break from John and, and uh, look at a couple other passages. Uh, I think it's going to break things up time to time, but I've definitely loved our time in John, and when we finish this book, I will I will miss... I've actually, if you guys will let me, once we finish John chapter 21, I'd like to just the next week start back in chapter 1, verse 1. Um, but great book, and if you're not doing this, again, periodically, just read through the Gospel of John. Um, work that into your Bible reading plans. I think it's good to to study a book that's being preached because I, th I think you just, we pick up different things um, when we study God's word. And even if it's a book that we've read many times before or studied many times before, there are still things that we can learn. And so John chapter 15 is where we'll be this morning. Um, to Illinois fans, I just want to, um, the Bible says to mourn with those who mourn. <laughs> And I, I mourn for Illinois fans every day, really. Pity, really, but no. Um, we had a fish fry last week. I want to thank everyone, especially uh, Gene and uh, Terry Ryder for their work in cooking the fish. And such a, a long process. I think Gene said he was up at like 3 in the morning breading fish. And so just so thankful for that. And also for everybody who helped clean up. Things like that are a lot of work, but it was also... A great time of fellowship and so I would do it next week if you're, if you're we don't have to do it next week but um, John chapter 15 this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you greater love has no one than this that someone laid down his life for his friends you are my friends if you do what I command you no longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we once again thank you and praise you for your goodness and grace. Lord, we thank you for this day, for the opportunity to come together and worship you. And we pray for people who are not in places where it's safe to do that. Lord, we pray for people in other parts of the world who are persecuted, who their lives, their livelihoods, and their families are in danger just for knowing and believing in you. Lord, we continue to lift up the church in Afghanistan. Lord, but there are other places in the world where there is similar peril for your people. And Lord, we pray for those people. Lord, we pray that they be protected. We pray for their hearts. Lord, we pray that against all odds and in situations that would seem impossible to the world, that your gospel can go forth even in those nations. And we trust and know that it is. Lord, we pray for our time today as we study in your word. And once again, when we come to study, may it not just be 
that we can learn a few things, but may it be that we can be transformed. Lord, may we be transformed into the likeness. May we be transformed from one degree of glory to the next as we learn about your son and know more about him. Lord, regardless of that somebody's been walking with you for a short time or for many decades, may this passage have something for all of us, Lord. We trust that it will because your word is alive, sharper than a two-edged sword. Lord, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. How many people know you? When I was 20 years old and a junior in college, that simple question stopped me in my tracks. The man who asked me became an influential figure in my life when I was in college. He was the director for Crew, the ministry, and I was just starting to get connected with that organization. At the time, I thought I had a lot of friends. I was in a fraternity. I was very active on campus. But he made me wonder, with a simple question, if anyone really knew me. Friendship can be a challenging thing. Acquaintances are one thing. We all have acquaintances, people who we know, who we're pleasant with, people we can have small talk with, talk about the weather with, talk about sports with. That's fine. But it can be easy to keep people at arm's length, control what we reveal to someone. Friendships are a struggle for many in our society. When comparing surveys that Gallup did in 1990 in a 2021 survey from the American Enterprise Institute, when asked how many close friends, not including family members, people had, for people who said that they had zero close friends, the 1990 percentage quadrupled from 3% to 12% this year. People who said that they had fewer than two close friends doubled from 16% to 32%. And the number of people who said that they had 10 or more close friends fell from 33% in 1990 down to 13% today. How many people know you? Not people to whom you can give a passing prayer request, but people who actually know your fears, know your dreams, know your struggles, your heart, and what makes you tick. There is something so incredibly life-giving about meaningful friendships and being known. Being known in your weaknesses and your imperfections, but still being loved in spite of those things. It's powerful. As I begin this morning, I have a second story. When I was in seminary at Trinity, I lived in a learning community on campus. My first year, it was me and 11 other guys. No, we didn't call ourselves the 12. But the purpose of our floor was intentionality in spiritual formation. We'd meet individually, and we would meet once a week as a floor. It was kind of like living with a Bible study or a Sunday school class. And these were men I respected, leaders, godly men, gifted men, people who I knew were going to do great things for the Lord, many of whom I still talk to. And in our weekly meetings, we'd talk about various things we were dealing with in life. 
And I realized something about this group of guys who I loved. That when we got past the academics and games and talking about sports and hanging out, all of those guys were just as messed up as I was. None of us had it all together. Because that can be an easy thing. And certainly it can be an easy thing in churches for groups to be very shallow, to not be very deep, to not really share, to not really invest, to always want to put up this facade that everything's fine. But when you have a group of people who can actually be open, who actually trust people, trust each other, where you can actually get beneath the surface, to me that was really life-changing. That type of community. We all had various struggles. Some of us had had different difficult life experiences that we were still recovering from. But it was a group of guys who I knew wanted to love Christ and honor him and serve him. How many people know you? Again, we can get really good at putting up the facade, having the right look, saying the right things, giving the appearance of having it all together. We can all talk about being super spiritual. But if we don't have true friendships, there can always be these lingering doubts of if they really knew me, if they really knew some of the darkness that was in my heart, if they really knew the things that I struggled with, if they really knew this about me, they'd think differently. And so many of us live in hiding. True friendship can be difficult. It can be challenging, yet it is absolutely essential. It's essential to our well-being. In a 2010 review of 148 studies, which across the board included more than 300,000 participants, stronger friendships were linked to increased lifespan and decreases in things such as high blood pressure and diabetes. Studies also found that close friendships had similar impacts on health to quitting smoking. And that in terms of lifespan, strong friendships were a bigger factor than strong family connections. That's not to say that family connections are not important. But it's to point out that true friendship matters. Friends, not acquaintances. People who know you well enough to love you in spite of yourself. It matters to our health, it matters to our happiness, and it matters to our ministering to the world as Christians. No matter how quiet or introverted or shy a person is, and I'll be honest, I'm an introvert. We need friends. It's part of our human nature, our need for friendship and connection. It's part of how we're created and what we're created for. And in our passage, Jesus tells his disciples, you are my friends. And with that, we're going to jump into our section this morning. And we'll look at three points. I don't know why I put up two fingers. We'll look at three points which Jesus makes about friendship as he talks about his friends, his disciples, on the eve of him going to the cross. And the main idea of this passage this morning is that Jesus came to befriend a humanity who were enemies with God. 
First point, the friendship Jesus calls us to. Jesus is talking to the disciples, John chapter 15, verses 12 and 13. He says, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. This is my commandment. In John's gospel, we see one commandment that Jesus explicitly gives. He first introduces the idea in John chapter 13, but it's the same command. And as a reminder, John chapters 12 through 17, at the end where he's arrested, are all the same night. So Jesus has recently given this new commandment in chapter 13. Verses 34 and 35, Jesus says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, certainly, the command to love one another is not new. But it's new in the sense that it is Jesus personally giving the command. And we see that same command in our passage this morning. Now, let's back up for just a second and consider the Gospels, the four canonical books. In Matthew chapter 22, Jesus is questioned by a group of Pharisees, and one of them asks Jesus, what is the greatest commandment of the Old Testament? And if you know your Bible, you know the answer. Jesus responds by telling them the greatest commandment in Matthew 22, verses 37 through 40. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So basically what that's saying is that on this greatest commandment, which is dual faceted, all of God's commands fall under one of those two tables. He's asked the same thing in Mark chapter 12, that all the law and the prophets depend on that command. So that's how Jesus responds when he's asked, what is the greatest commandment? But in John's gospel, when Jesus himself is speaking authoritatively and gives his disciples a commandment, on the eve of going to the cross, his command is that we love one another. Does that negate loving God? Of course not. Does that contradict the other Gospels? No. Because one is how Jesus responds when he's asked the greatest commandment, and the other is Jesus himself giving a command. John's Gospel commands followers of Jesus to love one another after assuming that the true follower of Jesus already loves him. Does that make sense? When Jesus gives the command to love, he's assuming that we love him. And as a result of our love for him, the fruit of that is that we love people. We see this idea really several times in the preceding chapters. John chapter 14, verse 15, Jesus says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. He gives one commandment in this gospel. Jesus is saying that the person who truly loves him keeps his command. And as a reminder... And I keep saying this because it's important to remember, it's the same night when Jesus is saying all of these things, the eve of the crucifixion, 
John 14, verse 21, Jesus says, Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Last example, John 15, 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. So again, Jesus continues to talk about keeping his commandments. But in John, we see him give one command. Love one another. Let us appreciate how close to the heart of Jesus it is that we have love for one another. It is obedience to that command that shows that we love Jesus. Loving others is not an option for the Christian. Does that mean that we like everyone? Not always. Does it mean that we love everything everyone does? No, especially not sin. But we are to love, to be patient and kind, to want the best for people, to want to see people come to Christ, to be forgiving when we've been hurt or wronged, to put differences aside, and to love people who are hard to love, to love one another as Jesus has loved us. Now that's quite the standard, because Jesus loves us with a perfect and righteous love. Jesus loves a world where people plotted against him, and where he was crucified. He loves a group of disciples where Peter denied him three times. And where the moments leading up to his arrest in the garden, some fell asleep and let him down. But he loves them anyway. And he loves you anyway. Jesus calls us to love one another as he has loved us. Second point. The friendship Jesus displays. And he points to the pinnacle of that love in verse 13, where he says, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Jesus is at one time pointing us to the great love for us that he's going to display on the cross when he lays down his life for his friends, while also pointing us to the incredible standard of love that he desires from us. The greatest display of love is laying down one's life for their friends. There's something about that idea that intuitively speaks to us. The power of sacrifice. We honor those who lay down their lives. Last week, the nation flew flags at half-mast in honor of 13 service members who lost their lives in Afghanistan. We have an entire day set aside, Memorial Day, to honor and remember those who gave their lives for our country. Next week, as we observe the 20th anniversary of September 11th, we remember great sacrifices people made. Firefighters who ran into those buildings at great peril to themselves. We lost 343 firefighters on September 11th. Police officers, Port Authority officers, FBI, at least one FBI agent, People who ran into those buildings knowing that they were putting themselves in harm's way. Incredibly dangerous. We remember the tremendous heroism of the people who overtook the hijackers on United Flight 93 
when they became aware of what happened to the other flights, the courage and bravery that they displayed. We honor and celebrate those stories, and we should. It's a powerful gesture when a person sacrifices their own life for something greater than themselves. Now, for many of us, if someone we loved, a spouse or a child or a grandchild was in mortal danger, I have absolutely no doubt that many people in this room would put themselves in harm's way before they let somebody they loved face harm or death. I have no doubt about that at all. But there's a couple things to keep in mind with Jesus explaining the example of giving one's life for their friends. And Jesus being the one who gives down his life for his friends. If I died to save someone's life, he'd call me a hero. But here's the thing. Unless Jesus comes back in my lifetime, I'm ultimately, inevitably, going to die. We might give up some time, some years of our lives, and that matters. And that's costly. But Jesus is the eternal God. He has life in himself. He would not have died a natural death, but he gave up his life. It's different than when an average person, when somebody dies. Do you see the difference? That we are not eternal in the way that Jesus is. And he died so that we could live. Again, that is not to discount or to underappreciate the sacrifices people make. Because those matter. Those matter a lot. But Jesus has eternal life and died for us. For a fallen world. In Romans chapter 5, the Apostle Paul is talking where he says... For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. Paul finishes his thought in verse 8. But God chose his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus befriends a world that was an enemy of God. Before we move on to our third point, I'll make this uh, application. While the pinnacle of love is laying down your life for someone, fortunately, there's a good chance that none of us are ever actually going to be in that situation. It can be easy to think of what we would do in an extreme situation. But what can be challenging is dealing with the realities of life and the world and our own challenges and struggles. It's easy to say that we would be the hero when we're not on the battlefield. We might not ever have to die for someone, but what are we living for? Are we living to honor the command of Jesus? Are we living to love people? And to honor the great God by loving people who he loves? By loving the people who he sent his son for? Jesus shows his love on the cross. Third point. The friendship Jesus invites us into. Verse 15. Jesus says, No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. 
The eternal Christ says that he does not call us servants, but he's called us friends. Like so many other things that Jesus says in the Gospels, if we're not careful, it can be so easy to overlook the immensity of that statement. That the Lord calls us his friends. In the Old Testament, that's not typically the language that's heard in relationship to people in God. We see that with Abraham, referred to as God's friend in the Old Testament. Abraham is also the patriarch of Israel. Isaiah 41.8 You, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend. So the idea is not altogether absent from the Old Testament, but it is not common in the Old Testament. But with Jesus, he makes a sweeping declaration that he calls all of his followers his friends. Think for a moment of the immense disparity of status between you and Jesus. Real quick, by show of hands, how many of you guys are friends with famous movie stars? Okay, put your hands down. How many of you are friends with uh, professional athletes? What about famous musicians, like people with like platinum albums, leaders of countries? We tend to have friends who are a similar social standing as we are. Now, if you can meet somebody famous who you admire, maybe it's an athlete, maybe it's a TV personality, whoever, somebody who you admire and respect, and you met that person, they're a famous person, and they sat down with you and talked to you for 15 or 20 minutes, and they asked you all about yourself, all about your life and your family and your interests, just so interested in you. You'd be so taken with that person. You'd tell everyone you knew about having met them, how nice they really were. Are you telling people about Jesus? Because the Lord of the universe invites us to personally know him. He calls us his friends. He gave his life for us. We tell people about meeting someone famous. We'd want a picture, we'd want an autograph. But that person would not be your friend. But Jesus is. Again, you'd tell everyone you knew about meeting someone famous. Friendship with Jesus is not meant to be something that we have just to ourselves. He calls us to love one another. But Jesus also values our friendship with those who do not know him, so that they too can be his friends. Verse 15 again, Jesus says, No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. This verse is showing the closeness of the relationship that we get with Jesus. We are created by him. We are subservient to him. We are infinitely less than him. But through divine initiative, Jesus no longer calls us servants. And he grounds that statement because the servant does not know what the master is doing. But Jesus lets us in. He's a personal savior. 
He would be within his rights to simply command us and we follow it. But instead, he came into the world and showed us. He demonstrated who he was to us. He taught us. Jesus revealed things about himself, his heart for the world. He spent time with people. He lets us in. In other religions, they believe that God is so transcendent and above people that he cannot be known. And while the Lord is so great that we cannot, by any means, fully comprehend him, yet Jesus is still relational and personal. Jesus came into the world and lived in total submission to the will of God. Though Jesus himself is divine, and in him the fullness of deity was pleased to dwell. And as the Son has a perfect relationship with the Father, Jesus invites us into a relationship and friendship with him. Sin had tarnished our relationship with God. But Jesus restores that in Jesus restores that broken relationship. And he can do that because the Father and the Son and the Spirit have a perfect relationship with each other. I want to quote Tim Keller, a sermon he did on this passage. I love how he articulates this, looking at the relationships of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. Keller says, The Bible tells us before time, when there was nothing else, in the beginning, before the beginning, from all eternity, before there was anything that was, there was friendship. Friendship was never created. There was never a time when friendship was not, because from all eternity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit were knowing and loving and delighting in each other. They were planning and talking and communicating with each other. Friendship is at the roots of reality. It's at the bottom of all things. It is something that is more profound than existence itself because, in a sense, it existed before there was existence. That and that alone explains just why loneliness is such a cosmic thing. End quote. In creation, in the garden, you have Adam, and what's it say? It was not good for him to be alone. Now, that's before sin. That's before the fall. And I'll borrow another point from Tim Keller. Before the fall, when there is no sin, and Adam is lonely, he's not lonely because there's something wrong with him. In other words, he's not lonely because he's imperfect. He's lonely because he's perfect. We are in the image of God, and God exists in an eternal relationship. And perfection requires relationship and communion. Keller points out that a lot of the struggles that we have, our anger, our envy, our jealousy and pride, those are all sins that we actively commit. In other words, loneliness does not result from our sin and imperfection. Loneliness is a struggle because we are created in the image of God. We are made for relationships. The passage continues, verse 16. Jesus says, 
You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Now, is Jesus saying that he chose them to be disciples and that this verse is just talking about disciples? No. This verse is true for all friends of Jesus. You did not choose me, but I chose you. And it should not be surprising. In the Old Testament, as Israel did not choose to be God's chosen nation, and Abraham did not choose to be selected by God for the covenant, our friendship with Christ is ultimately at his sovereign initiative. Ephesians 1.4 says, Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. And what a comfort it is that our faith and our friendship with Jesus does not hinge on us. I'm sure we've all had friendships that did not stand the test of time where we've had a falling out with someone else. But Jesus is a friend who never leaves us. He's a friend who is always faithful. In verse 17, these things I command you so that you will love one another. That verse wraps up the section. He points back to what he has said and reminds us of the purpose for what he has said, so that you will love one another. Now let's tie this all together. And as a reminder in verse 16, where Jesus said, I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. That is getting at our purpose as Jesus' friends, that we go and bear fruit. And I've said this about eight times today, but just as a reminder again, that it's the night before he goes to the cross. It's the night before he's crucified. And these are the final words that he's giving to his disciples. And what Jesus is getting at here is his mission for the world. His command is that the disciples love. The true disciple of Jesus observes his command. Jesus calls his disciples his friends. And Jesus appointed disciples to go and bear fruit. To go into the world and bear fruit. To go into a world that is hostile to the gospel and share the message of Christ. To go into a world that are enemies of God and to make friends and introduce those friends to Jesus. We're called to love one another and to love others with the love of Jesus. We're called to love sacrificially. We're called to love missionally. In verse 15, when Jesus calls us friends and points to how we are not servants but friends because we know what the master is doing, that points us to the intentional relationality of friendship. Friendship is being fully known and loved. And that can be hard in a small town like this. Again, it can be easy to have a lot of acquaintances in a small town. But being fully known and fully loved is hard. Because there's risk to friendship. 
There's risk in being known. You can be hurt by that. And so some respond by shutting down, by not letting people in. Again, in a small town with families who know each other, where there's history, people you work with, went to school with, it can be hard to be open. Again, it's easy to know people and who they are, but to really know people. What if someone shares that? What if someone else finds out? What if someone thinks differently differently about me? True friendship is hard. And I'm not saying that we should just pour out our hearts to every person we meet. We can't do that. We shouldn't do that. But we can't do that because friendship, true friendship, takes time. And time is finite. But as a church, what we can do is be intentional about building relationships within the church and outside the church. And there are no shortcuts to friendship. Having great friends requires being a great friend. Again, it takes time to build relationships. It takes time to get to know someone, and it takes time to be known. Friendship is being fully known and fully loved. A therapist might know a lot about a person, but a therapist isn't your friend because you don't know them. Friendship requires mutuality. Friendship is a two-way street. Again, family is the cornerstone of civilization and cannot be discounted. And strong families matter, but they're not the only thing that matters. We're also called to be a friend. We aren't called to just sit back with what we have and hunker down. It's a great blessing to have a great family. But we are not called to focus only on that. We aren't to neglect that. But friendship matters. Again, friendship existed before the world existed. It is eternal. Relationships are what we are made for. And within the church and within our community, Jesus calls us to be friends who make friends and introduce people to our friend, Jesus. Within the church and within the community, Again, he calls us to introduce people to him and to be a friend. It's what Jesus calls us to. And it's what he commands us to. And Jesus expects a person who loves him to follow his command. How many people know you? Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, there are so many distractions that we have that get in the way, compete for our time and attention. Lord, let us not lose sight in all of that about being intentional, about being a friend. Lord, there are people in our community, not only who don't know you, but who are lonely. Let us reach those people. Let us have a burden for those people. And Lord, let us grow and be strengthened in our friendships and relationships that we have as a church. Lord, it is what you call us to, and that we live up to that. In Jesus' name, amen.